0: Section two of the brushwood boy by Roger Kipling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Liam Neely. Ten years at an English public school do not encourage dreaming. Georgie won his growth and chest measurement and a few other things which did not appear in the bills under a system of cricket, football, and paper chases from four to five days a week, which provided for three lawful cuts of ground ash if any boy absented himself from these entertainments. He became a rumple-collared, dusty-hatted fag of the lower third, and light half-back at little side football was pushed and prodded through the slack backwaters of the lower fourth, where the raffle of a school generally accumulates, won his second fifteen cap at football, enjoyed the dignity of a study with two companions in it, and began to look forward to office as a sub-prefect. At last he blossomed into full glory as head of the school, ex officio captain of the games, head of his house, where he and his lieutenants preserved discipline and decency among seventy boys from twelve to seventeen, general arbiter in the quarrels that spring up among the touchy sixth, and intimate friend and ally of the head himself. When he stepped forth in the black jersey, white knickers, and black stockings of the first fifteen, the new match-ball under his arm and his old and frayed cap at the back of his head the small fry of the lower forms stood apart and worshipped and the new caps of the team talked to him ostentatiously that the world might see and so in summer when he came back to the pavilion after a slow but eminently safe game it mattered not whether he had made nothing or as once happened a hundred and three the school shouted just the same and woman folk who had come to look at the match looked at cotter cotter major that's cotter above all he was responsible for that thing called the tone of the school and few realise with what passionate devotion a certain type of boy throws himself into his work. Home was a far-away country full of ponies, and fishing, and shooting, and men-visitors who interfered with one's plans. But school was the real world, where things of vital importance happened, and crises arose that must be dealt with promptly and quietly. Not for nothing was it written. Let the consuls look to it that the Republic takes no harm. And Georgie was glad to be back in authority when the holidays ended. Behind him, but not too near, was the wise and temperate head, now suggesting the wisdom of the serpent, now counselling the mildness of the dove, leading him on to see, more by half hints than by any direct word, how boys, and men are all of a piece, and how he who can handle the one will assuredly in time control the other. For the rest, the school was not encouraged to dwell on its emotions, but rather to keep in hard condition to avoid false quantities, and to enter the army direct without help of the expensive London crammer, under whose roof young blood learns too much. Cotter, Major, went the way of hundreds before him. The head gave him six months' final polish, taught him what kind of answers best please a certain kind of examiners, and handed him over to the properly constituted authorities, who passed him into Sandhurst. Here he had the sense to see that he was in the lower third once more, and behaved with respect toward his seniors, until they in turn respected him. And he was promoted to the rank of corporal, and sat in authority over mixed peoples with all the vices of men and boys combined. His reward was another string of athletic cups, a good conduct sword, and at last Her Majesty's commission as a subaltern in a first-class line regiment. He did not know that he bore with him from school and college a character worth much fine gold, but was pleased to find his mess so kindly. He had plenty of money of his own. His training had set the public school mask upon his face, and had taught him how many were the things no fellow can do. By virtue of the same training he kept his paws open and his mouth shut. The regular working of the empire shifted his world to India, where he tasted utter loneliness in a subaltern's quarters, one room and one bullock-trunk, and, with his mess, learned the new life from the beginning. But there were horses in the land, ponies at reasonable price. There was polo, for such as could afford it, there were the disreputable remnants of a pack of hounds. And Cotter worried his way along without too much despair. It dawned on him that a regiment in India was nearer the chance of active service than he had conceived, and that a man might as well study his profession. A major of the new school backed this idea with enthusiasm and he and Cotter accumulated a library of military works, and read, and argued, and disputed far into the nights. But the adjutant said the old thing, "'Get to know your men, young'un, and they'll follow you anywhere.' "'That's all you want—know your men.' Cotter thought he knew them fairly well at cricket and the regimental sports, "'but he never realized the true inwardness of them "'until he was sent off with a detachment of twenty "'to sit down in a mud fort near a rushing river "'which was spanned by a bridge of boats. "'When the floods came, they went forth "'and hunted strayed pontoons along the banks. "'Otherwise there was nothing to do, "'and the men got drunk, gambled, and quarrelled. "'There were sickly crew.' "'for a junior subaltern is by custom saddled with the worst men. "'Cotter endured their rioting as long as he could, "'and then sent down country for a dozen pairs of boxing-gloves. "'I wouldn't blame you for fighting,' said he, "'if you only knew how to use your hands. "'But you don't. Take these things and I'll show you.' "'The men appreciated his efforts.' Now, instead of blaspheming and swearing at a comrade, and threatening to shoot him, they could take him apart, and soothe themselves to exhaustion. As one explained, whom Cotter found with a shut eye and a diamond-shaped mouth spitting blood through an embouchure, We tried it with the gloves, sir, for twenty minutes, and that done us no good, sir. "'Then we took off the gloves and tried it that way for another twenty minutes, "'same as you showed us, sir, and that done us a world of good. "'It wasn't fightin', sir. There was a bet on.' Cotter dared not laugh, but he invited his men to other sports, such as racing across country in shirt and trousers after a trail of torn paper, and to single-stick in the evenings— till the native population, who had a lust for sport in every form, wished to know whether the white men understood wrestling. They sent in an ambassador, who took the soldiers by the neck and threw them about the dust, and the entire command were all for the new game. They spent money on learning new falls and holes, which was better than buying other doubtful commodities, and the peasantry grinned five deep round the tournaments. That detachment, who had gone up in bullock-carts, returned to headquarters at an average rate of thirty miles a day, fair heel and toe—no sick, no prisoners, and no court-martials pending. They scattered themselves among their friends, singing the praises of their lieutenant, and looking for causes of offence. "'How did you do it, young un?' the adjutant asked. "'Oh, I sweated the beef off em, and then I sweated some muscle on to em. was rather a lark.' "'If that's your way of looking at it, we can give you all the larks you want. Young Davis isn't feeling quite fit.' and he's next for detachment duty. Care to go for him? Sure he wouldn't mind. I don't want to shove myself forward, you know. You needn't bother on Davis's account. We'll give you the sweepings of the court, and you can see what you can make of them." "'All right,' said Cotter. "'It's better fun than loafing about cantonments. Rummy thing!" said the adjutant after Cotter had returned to his wilderness with twenty other devils worse than the first. "If Cotter only knew it, half the women in the station would give their eyes, confound em, to have the young un in tow." "That accounts for mrs Ellery saying I was working my nice new boy too hard," said a wing commander. Oh, yes. And why doesn't he come to the bandstand in the evenings? And can't I get him to make up a four at tennis with the Hammond girls?' the adjutant snorted. "'Look at young Davis, making an ass of himself over mutton dressed as lamb, old enough to be his mother.' "'No one can accuse young Cotter of running after women, white or black,' the major replied thoughtfully. But then—' That's the kind that generally goes the worst mucker in the end. Not Cotter. I've only run across one of his muster before—a fellow called Ingalls in South Africa. He was just the same hard-trained athletic sports build of animal, always kept himself in the pink of condition. Didn't do him much good, though—shot at Vesselstrom the week before Majuba. "'Wonder how the young un will lick his detachment into shape.' "'Cotter turned up six weeks later, on foot, with his pupils. "'He never told his experiences, but the men spoke enthusiastically, "'and fragments of it leaked back to the colonel through sergeants, batmen, and the like. "'There was great jealousy between the first and second detachments, "'but the men united in adoring Cotter.' and their way of showing it was by sparing him all the trouble that men know how to make for an unloved officer. He sought popularity as little as he had sought it at school, and therefore it came to him. He favoured no one, not even when the company sloven pulled the company cricket-match out of the fire with an unexpected forty-three at the last moment. There was very little getting round him for he seemed to know by instinct exactly when and where to head off a malingerer. But he did not forget that the difference between a dazed and sulky junior of the upper school and a bewildered brow-beaten lump of a private fresh from the depot was very small indeed. The sergeants, seeing these things, told him secrets generally hid from young officers, his words were quoted as barrack authority on bets, in canteen, and at tea. And the veriest shrew of the corps, bursting with charges against other women who had used the cooking ranges out of turn, forbore to speak when Cotter, as the regulations ordained, asked of a morning if there were any complaints. "'I'm full of complaints,' said Mrs. Corporal Morrison.' "'and I'd kill O'Halloran's fat sow of a wife any day. "'But you know how it is. "'He puts his head just inside the door "'and looks down his blessed nose so bashful, "'and he whispers, "'Any complaints?' "'You can't complain after that. "'I want to kiss him. "'One day I think I will. "'Hey-ho! "'She'll be a lucky woman that gets young innocence. "'See him now, girls. "'Do you blame me?' Cotter was cantering across to Polo, and he looked a very satisfactory figure of a man, as he gave easily to the first excited bucks of his pony, and slipped over a low mud wall to the practice ground. There were more than Mrs. Corporal Morrison, who felt as she did. But Cotter was busy for eleven hours of the day. He did not care to have his tennis spoiled by petticoats in the court and, after one long afternoon at a garden party, he explained to his major that this sort of thing was futile priffle, and the major laughed. Theirs was not a married mess, except for the Colonel's wife, and Cotter stood in awe of the good lady. She said, My regiment, and the world knows what that means. Nonetheless, when they wanted her to give away prizes after a shooting-match, and she refused because one of the prize-winners was married to a girl who had made a jest of her behind her broad back. The mess ordered Cotter to tackle her in his best calling-kit. This he did simply and laboriously, and she gave way altogether. She only wanted to know the facts of the case, he explained. I just told her, and she saw at once. "'Yes,' said the adjutant. "'I expect that's what she did. Come to the Fusiliers' dance tonight, Galahad?' "'No, thanks. I've got a fight on with the Major.' The virtuous apprentice sat up till midnight in the major's quarters, with a stop-watch and a pair of compasses, shifting little painted lead blocks about a four-inch map. Then he turned in and slept the sleep of Innocence, which is full of healthy dreams. One peculiarity of his dreams he noticed at the beginning of his second hot weather. Two or three times a month they duplicated or ran in series. He would find himself sliding into dreamland by the same road, a road that ran along a beach near a pile of brushwood. To the right lay the sea, sometimes at full tide, sometimes withdrawn to the very horizon. But he knew it for the same sea. By that road he would travel over a swell of rising ground, covered with short withered grass, into valleys of wonder and unreason. Beyond the ridge, which was crowned with some sort of street-lamp, anything was possible. But up to the lamp it seemed to him that he knew the road as well as he knew the parade-ground. He learned to look forward to the place, for once there, he was sure of a good night's rest and indian hot weather can be rather trying first shadowy under closing eyelids would come the outline of the brushwood pile next the white sand of the beach road almost overhanging the black changeful sea then the turn inland and uphill to the single light When he was unrestful for any reason, he would tell himself how he was sure to get there—sure to get there—if he shut his eyes and surrendered to the drift of things. But one night, after a foolishly hard hour's polo—the thermometer was ninety-four in his quarters at ten o'clock—sleep stood away from him altogether, though he did his best to find the well-known road the point where true sleep began. At last he saw the brushwood pile, and hurried along to the ridge, for behind him he felt was the wide-awake, sultry world. He reached the lamp in safety, tingling with drowsiness, when a policeman, a common country policeman, sprang up before him and touched him on the shoulder, ere he could dive into the dim valley below. He was filled with terror, the hopeless terror of dreams. For the policeman said, in the awful distinct voice of dream-people, I am Policeman Day, coming back from the City of Sleep. You come with me. Georgie knew it was true, that just beyond him, in the valley, lay the lights of the City of Sleep, where he would have been sheltered and that this policeman-thing had full power and authority to head him back to miserable wakefulness. He found himself looking at the moonlight on the wall, dripping with fright, and he never overcame that horror, though he met the policeman several times that hot weather, and his coming was the forerunner of a bad night. But other dreams, perfectly absurd ones, filled him with an incommunicable delight. All those that he remembered began by the brushwood pile. For instance, he found a small clockwork steamer. He had noticed it many nights before, lying by the sea-road, and stepped into it, whereupon it moved with surpassing swiftness over an absolutely level sea. This was glorious, for he felt he was exploring great matters, and it stopped by a lily carved in stone, which most naturally floated on the water. Seeing the lily was labelled Hong Kong, Georgie said, Of course, this is precisely what I expected Hong Kong would be like. How magnificent! Thousands of miles further on, it halted at yet another stone lily, labelled Java. And this again delighted him hugely, Because he knew that now he was at the world's end. But the little boat ran on and on, Till it lay in a deep, fresh water lock, The sides of which were carven marble, green with moss. Lily-pads lay on the water, and reeds arched above. Someone moved among the reeds, someone whom Georgie knew he had travelled to this world's end to reach. Therefore everything was entirely well with him. He was unspeakably happy, and vaulted over the ship's side to find this person. When his feet touched that still water, It changed, with the rustle of unrolling maps, to nothing less than a sixth quarter of the globe, beyond the most remote imagining of man. A place where islands were colored yellow and blue, their lettering strung across their faces, they gave on unknown seas, and Georgie's urgent desire was to return swiftly across this floating atlas to known bearings. He told himself repeatedly that it was no good to hurry. But still he hurried desperately, and the island slipped and slid under his feet. The straits yawned and widened, till he found himself utterly lost in the world's fourth dimension, with no hope of return. Yet only a little distance away he could see the old world with the rivers and mountain chains marked according to the Sandhurst rules of back making. Then that person for whom he had come to the Lily Lock-that was its name-ran up across unexplored territories and showed him the way. They fled hand in hand till they reached a road that spanned ravines, and ran along the edge of precipices, and was tunnelled through mountains. "'This goes to our brushwood pile,' said his companion. And all his trouble was at an end. He took a pony, because he understood that this was the thirty-mile ride, and he must ride swiftly and raced through the clattering tunnels and round the curves, always downhill, till he heard the sea to his left and saw it raging under a full moon against sandy cliffs. It was heavy going, but he recognized the nature of the country, the dark purple downs in land and the bents that whistled in the wind. The road was eaten away in places, and the sea lashed at him black, foamless tongues of smooth and glossy rollers. But he was sure that there was less danger from the sea than from them, whoever they were, inland to his right. He knew, too, that he would be safe if he could reach the down with the lamp on it. This came as he expected. He saw the one light a mile ahead along the beach, dismounted, turned to the right, walked quietly over to the brushwood pile, found the little steamer had returned to the beach whence he had unmoored it, and must have fallen asleep, for he could remember no more. "'I'm getting the hang of the geography of that place,' he said to himself, as he shaved next morning. I must have made some sort of circle. Let's see. The Thirty-Mile Ride—how the deuce did I know it was called the Thirty-Mile Ride—joins the sea-road beyond the first down where the lamp is, and that atlas country lies at the back of the Thirty-Mile Ride, somewhere out to the right beyond the hills and tunnels. Rummy things, dreams! wonder what makes mine fit into each other so." He continued on his solid way through the recurring duties of the seasons. The regiment was shifted to another station, and he enjoyed road-marching for two months, with a good deal of mixed shooting thrown in. And when they reached their new cantonments, he became a member of the local tent club, and chased the mighty boar on horseback, with a short stabbing spear. There he met the Monsieur of Punch, beside whom the tarpon was a herring, and he who lands him can say that he is a fisherman. This was as new and as fascinating as the big game-shooting that fell to his portion, when he had himself photographed, for his mother's benefit, sitting on the flank of his first tiger. Then the adjutant was promoted, and Cotter rejoiced with him, for he admired the adjutant greatly, and marvelled who might be big enough to fill his place, so that he nearly collapsed when the mantle fell on his own shoulders. And the colonel said a few sweet things that made him blush. An adjutant's position does not differ materially from that of head of the school and Cotter stood in the same relation to the colonel, as he had to his old head in England. Only tempers wear out in hot weather, and things were said and done that tried him sorely, and he made glorious blunders from which the regimental sergeant-major pulled him with a loyal soul and a shut mouth. Slovens and incompetence raged against him the weak-minded strove to lure him from the ways of justice the small-minded yea men whom cotter believed would never do things no fellow can do imputed motives mean and circuitous to actions that he had not spent a thought upon and he tasted injustice and it made him very sick but his consolation came on parade when he looked down the full companies, and reflected how few were in hospitals or cells, and wondered when the time would come to try the machine of his love and labour. But they needed and expected the whole of a man's working day, and maybe three or four hours of the night. Curiously enough, he never dreamed about the regiment, as he was popularly supposed to. The mind, set free from the day's doings, generally ceased working altogether, or, if it moved at all, carried him along the old beach road to the Downs, the lamp-post, and once in a while to terrible policeman day. The second time that he returned to the world's lost continent—this was a dream that repeated itself again and again, with variations on the same ground— he knew that if he only sat still the person from the Lily Lock would help him, and he was not disappointed. Sometimes he was trapped in mines of vast depth, hollowed out of the heart of the world, where men in torment chanted echoing songs, and he heard this person coming along through the galleries, and everything was made safe and delightful. They met again in low-roofed Indian railway carriages that halted in a garden surrounded by gilt and green railings, where a mob of stony white people, all unfriendly, sat at breakfast tables covered with roses, and separated Georgie from his companion, while underground voices sang deep-voiced songs. Georgie was filled with enormous despair till they two met again. They foregathered in the middle of an endless hot tropic night, and crept into a huge house that stood, he knew, somewhere north of the railway station, where the people ate among the roses. It was surrounded with gardens, all moist and dripping, and in one room, reached through leagues of whitewashed passages, a sick thing lay in bed. Now the least noise, Georgie knew would unchain some waiting horror, and his companion knew it too. But when their eyes met across the bed, Georgie was disgusted to see that she was a child, a little girl in strapped shoes, with her black hair combed back from her forehead. What disgraceful folly, he thought! Now she could do nothing whatever if its head came off. Then the thing coughed, and the ceiling shattered down in plaster on the mosquito netting, and they rushed in from all quarters. He dragged the child through the stifling garden, voices chanting behind them, and they rode the thirty-mile ride under whip and spur, along the sandy beach by the booming sea, until they came to the downs, the lamp-post and the brushwood pile, which was safety. Very often dreams would break up about them in this fashion, and they would be separated to endure awful adventures alone. But the most amusing times were when he and she had a clear understanding that it was all make-believe, and walked through mile-wide roaring rivers, without even taking off their shoes or set light to populous cities to see how they would burn and were rude as any children to the vague shadows met in their rambles. Later in the night they were sure to suffer for this, either at the hands of the railway-people eating among the roses, or in the tropic uplands at the far end of the thirty-mile ride. Together this did not much affright them, but often Georgie would hear her shrill cry of boy boy half a world away, and hurry to her rescue before they maltreated her. He and she explored the dark purple downs as far inland from the brushwood pile as they dared, but that was always a dangerous matter. The interior was filled with them, and they went about singing in the hollows and Georgie and she felt safer on or near the seaboard. So thoroughly had he come to know the place of his dreams, that even waking he accepted it as a real country, and made a rough sketch of it. He kept his own counsel, of course, but the permanence of the land puzzled him. His ordinary dreams were as formless and as fleeting as any healthy dreams could be, but once at the brushwood pile he moved within known limits, and could see where he was going. There were months at a time when nothing notable crossed his sleep. Then the dreams would come in a batch of five or six, and next morning the map he kept in his writing case would be written up to date, for Georgie— Was a most methodical person. There was indeed a danger, his seniors said so, of his developing into a regular auntie fuss of an adjutant, and when an officer once takes to old maidism, there is more hope for the virgin of seventy than for him. But fate sent the change that was needed in the shape of a little winter campaign on the border which after the manner of little campaigns flashed out into a very ugly war and cotter's regiment was chosen among the first now said a major this'll shake the cobwebs out of us all especially you galahad and we can see what your hen with one chick attitude has done for the regiment Cotter nearly wept with joy as the campaign went forward. They were fit physically beyond the other troops. They were good children in camp, wet or dry, fed or unfed, and they followed their officers with the quick suppleness and trained obedience of a first-class Football Fifteen. They were cut off from their apology for a base, and cheerfully cut their way back to it again. They crowned and cleaned out the hills full of the enemy, with the precision of well-broken dogs of chase, and in the hour of retreat, when hampered with the sick and wounded of the column, they were persecuted down eleven miles of waterless valley. They, serving as rear-guard, covered themselves with great glory in the eyes of fellow professionals. Any regiment can advance but few know how to retreat with a sting in the tail. Then they turned to made roads, most often under fire, and dismantled some inconvenient mud redoubts. They were the last corps to be withdrawn, when the rubbish of the campaign was all swept up, and after a month in standing camp which dries morale severely, they departed to their own place in column of fours, singing. He's going to do without em don't want em any more. He's going to do without as he's often done before. He's going to be a martyr on an idly novel plan, and all the boys and girls will say, Oh, what a nice young man, 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 oh, what a nice young man. There came out a gazette, in which Carter found that he had been behaving with courage and coolness and discretion in all his capacities, that he had assisted the wounded under fire, had blown in a gate also under fire. Net result his captaincy and a brevet majority, coupled with the Distinguished Service Order. As to his wounded, he explained that they were both heavy men, whom he could lift more easily than anyone else. Otherwise, of course, I should have sent out one of my men. And of course, about that gate business, we were safe the minute we were well under the walls. But this did not prevent his men from cheering him furiously whenever they saw him, or the mess from giving him a dinner on the eve of his departure to England. A year's leave was among the things he had snaffled out of the campaign, to use his own words. The doctor, who had taken quite as much as was good for him, quoted poetry about a good blade carving the casks of men, and so on. And everybody told Cotter that he was an excellent person, but when he rose to make his maiden speech— They shouted so that he was understood to say, It isn't any use trying to speak to you chaps rottenly like this. Let's have some pool. End of section two. Recording by Liam Neely. www.wistfulvistas.com slash reviews slash Liam.